0: Welcome to episode 12 of our podcast series. This features material from our May 2022 print edition of the Residential Aged Care Communique. I'm Joseph Ibrahim, the editor of that Communique issue. This podcast focuses on the death of a young male resident from asphyxia. This could have been prevented if the aged care home had a better response to managing an internal emergency. The case also highlights the importance of having enough staff present and allocating them appropriately. Another fascinating aspect this case presents is the dilemma about whether cardiopulmonary resuscitation or CPR should have been done. Should the paramedics follow the resident's directive of not for CPR? Even though the precipitating condition was not due to a natural disease process. What would you do? Associate Professor Barbara Hayes explores advanced care planning and the dilemmas about cardiopulmonary resuscitation, while our other expert commentary from Anita Westerer addresses the impact of staffing on the provision of care. Let's now listen to the editorial.
1: This podcast has five segments. The contents are Editorial, Case Number One, Get Me Out, Commentary Number One, Advanced Care Planning, Commentary Number Two, Improving Outcomes for Residents, and a special article examining selected recommendations from the Royal Commission. Editorial Welcome to our second issue of the Residential Aged Care Communique for 2022. Our focus, as always, is on learning from the past to make the future better, a philosophy that has much deeper significance at this time of massive upheaval locally, nationally, and internationally with the overwhelming mood of helplessness and hopelessness affecting people in the sector. Aged care systems around the world are facing massive challenges uncovered by substantive inquiries into failures of the system in the past year. Three key reports are worth noting. From Australia, the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety completed its report in 2021. And from Canada, the Public Inquiry into the Safety and Security of Residents in Long-Term Care Home System completed its report in 2022, which was initiated after residents were murdered at the hands of a healthcare serial killer. And from United States of America, the 2022 report, The National Imperative to Improve Nursing Home Quality. It requires effort to maintain a sense of optimism and purpose. This is achieved by valuing each other and the work we do in aged care, doing the seemingly small things in our influence well each day. We should also be reassured to a degree that there is incontrovertible evidence that supports the need to improve the situation for both residents and staff. This edition of the Residential Aged Care Communique focuses on the premature and preventable death of a young male resident from asphyxia. While the actual circumstances leading to the resident's fall and injury may not have been anticipated, better preparation and incident response would have avoided a fatal outcome. There are multiple themes emerging from this case relevant to our current and future practice. The most readily overlooked macro or big picture issue is the resident was young, only 63 years of age. We addressed the issue of young people in aged care and the unique risks in our August 2018 edition. The subject was revisited a year later by the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety Interim Report, titled Neglect, published in October 2019, which noted there was an urgent need to stop the flow of younger people with disability going into aged care. The other themes to emerge are much more familiar. At the MISO level, that is, organisation level, related to staffing levels and training and at the micro level or individual level, these relate to how staff respond in an emergency. To make the case even more complex, there are ethical questions that also arise around the interpretation of an advanced care plan, specifically whether or not for cardiopulmonary resuscitation order should be adhered to when the incident leading to the emergency was potentially preventable. Our expert commentary is written by Associate Professor Barbara Hayes who is a national leader in the field of advanced care planning and end-of-life care. The second commentary is by Anita Westerer who is part of the team that investigated staffing levels for the Royal Commission.
0: Let's now listen to our first case report titled Get Me Out.
1: Case report Get Me Out from Dr Daray Ui consultant geriatrician. Clinical summary. Mr. J was a 63-year-old male who was married and a father of two children. His past medical history included ischemic heart disease and a right middle cerebral artery infarct resulting in left side paralysis, a lowered mood and a change in personality. Mobility aids included an electric motorized wheelchair. Mr J entered a small 38-bed metropolitan-based, not-for-profit aged care facility sometime after the stroke. The changes in his personality included agitation and aggression, made home-based care untenable. Over the following 18 months, Mr J had several falls, one while transferring from bed to wheelchair and another fall in the toilet. There were also episodes of Mr J being verbally abusive towards other residents or verbally inappropriate to staff members. Very late one summer night, Mr J went to bed under the supervision of two staff. Early the next morning, Mr J independently transferred from his bed into the wheelchair and had an unwitnessed fall. He called out for help. Two staff, an enrolled nurse and a personal care assistant who were on duty and on site who heard Mr J's cry for help, On entering the room, it looked like Mr J had lost balance from his wheelchair while leaning forward to open the bottom drawer of the bedside drawers. Mr J's head was lodged within the bottom drawer and he was unable to lift himself out due to his left-sided weakness. Mr J was distressed and yelling as he could not move. The enrolled nurse and personal care assistant were unable to lift Mr J out of the drawer and the use of a lifting machine was considered inappropriate The enrolled nurse telephoned 000 for emergency support. The Emergency Services Telecommunications Authority advised them not to move Mr J and to assign someone to wait at the front of the facility to facilitate prompt entry for paramedics. The enrolled nurse assigned the personal care assistant to remain with Mr J and went to the front of the aged care facility to await the arrival of the paramedics. Approximately 10 minutes later, The ambulance service called, asking for more details about Mr J's position and whether the pressure was on his chest or neck. The enrolled nurse was uncertain as she had not looked. The enrolled nurse continued returning to the bedroom to check on Mr J and the personal care assistant, while also attending to the needs of other residents and remaining on the lookout for paramedics. Ambulance paramedics arrived 30 minutes after the initial phone call and located Mr. J lying on his left side with his head inside the drawer, unresponsive with a fully occluded airway. He was pulseless and not breathing. Mr. J was cyanosed nosed and very blue to the face and there was no movement, sound or anything present. Mr. J was placed onto his back on the floor and cardiopulmonary resuscitation was commenced. Ambulance paramedics requested Mr J's clinical record and identified a signed advanced care directive on entry to the aged care facility, which indicated that he did not want cardiopulmonary resuscitation to be initiated if found pulseless and not breathing. Cardiopulmonary resuscitation was ceased. Mr J was declared deceased approximately 45 minutes after the fall. The death was reported to the coroner's court. Pathology Pathology A forensic pathologist completed a full post-mortem examination, which included a computerized tomography scan and toxological analysis of blood. The cause of death was complications of an inverted positional event with ischemic heart disease and his previous cerebrovascular accident as contributing factors. The toxicology results found the presence of duolexetine and paracetamol at levels consistent with therapeutic use. Investigation. The scope of the death investigation was extensive and was concluded approximately 32 months after the date of death. The inquest comprised five days of court hearings with different legal counsel representing the aged care facility, the ambulance service and emergency services telecommunications authority. Evidence was taken from staff and executives of the aged care facility, paramedics and ESTA investigator and an independent senior nurse expert. The inquest sought to address whether the care provided to Mr J immediately after the fall was appropriate and in keeping with the aged care facility's policy, whether the aged care facility had any systemic issues relating to training and staffing ratios that may have influenced the outcome, whether the line of questioning by the ESTA call taker was appropriate and whether the paramedic's decision to cease cardiopulmonary resuscitation was appropriate in those circumstances and in line with their clinical practice guidelines. At the time of the incident, the enrolled nurse explained that Mr J had his head face down in the bottom drawer wedged underneath the middle drawer, that he was thrashing out and she could not see his left side. Mr J's vital signs were not taken. The enrolled nurse considered his airway and circulation were unimpeded as he was yelling and colour in his hands and neck was okay. The enrolled nurse explained that the personal care assistant was competent to make important observations such as assessing Mr J's pallor, breathing and behaviour. The enrolled nurse did not attempt to move Mr J to assess him and on each occasion that she returned to Mr J's room, observed no signs of distress and noted that he was still speaking. On one occasion, the personal care assistant had told the enrolled nurse that Mr J had gone very quiet. The enrolled nurse commented that Mr J's pulse was weak and left the room to await the paramedics. Again, vital signs were not taken. This critical information was not relayed to ESTA. Other potential options to assist in managing the situation were missed. These included no attempt was made to contact the on-call registered nurse for support who lived only 10 minutes away. Also, use of a communication device such as a two-way radio or telephone was not available to be used. The enrolled nurse and personal care assistant were the only members of staff on duty that night for 34 residents and the two had not met or worked together prior to this shift. An independent expert opinion from an experienced nurse academic was asked to comment on the appropriateness of the facility staff. The expert opined that the more experienced staff member should have been working with and remained with Mr J. The nurse should have provided care and resuscitation to him before the arrival of paramedics. Training in first aid was not a mandatory requirement for personal care assistance, but may be required by individual operators. Staffing mix in aged care facilities should include a registered nurse as the mix of residents and varying needs have different care requirements, that the expertise in critical thinking skills that comes with being a registered nurse is required. Mr J's advanced care directive reflected his refusal of treatment, but further commented that confusion about what is being explained and understood may occur with the person making the decision. The expert noted the importance of not taking a person's wishes out of context that are not for resuscitation order refers to a major significant event, that is, a cardiac or respiratory arrest. ESDA call takers process requests for assistance using standardized protocols that have key questions for the different event types. They have little discretion to deviate from the protocol. The call for assistance was perceived as a fall with a head strike and Protocol 17 was applied. Following review, the Protocol 22 designed for events of entrapments would have been more appropriate and led to a Priority 1 dispatch of units. The ESTA caller expressed concerns about not getting a clearer picture of what was happening. On the day of entry to the aged care facility, an advanced care directive was completed in the presence of Mr J's wife and their daughter. His preference not to be resuscitated if found pulseless and not breathing was clear. The family explained that the not-for-resuscitation instructions were not intended for accidental situations. The expert considered the actions of the paramedics to be in accordance with guidelines, and they had accepted the information in the Advanced Care Directive in good faith. Coroner's Findings Mr J's death was preventable had he been removed from his perilous position and if there was no delay in dispatch and arrival of paramedics. The aged care facility had a minimum staff with a minimum combination of qualifications. In addition, the aged care facility had failed to ensure that the enrolled nurse had the necessary induction, support and competencies to manage the incident. This led to shortcomings in the management of Mr J, including application of basic first aid Assessing baseline vital signs, protecting airway, contacting the on call registered nurse for support, updating ESTA of his deterioration, and recognizing that he had lost consciousness and died. The communication between the enrolled nurse on duty and ESTA led to a delay in provision of paramedic assistance. The enrolled nurse described Mr. J was jammed in the drawer and did not describe the potential risk of respiratory compromise. Furthermore, there was no escalation to ESTA when Mr J appeared to have deteriorated. This resulted in a lower priority dispatch. Ambulance paramedics acted on evidence of Mr J's advanced care directive and it was found to be appropriate in those circumstances. Recommendations The coroner made seven recommendations including the aged care facility to ensure that all staff are well trained and to provide periodic updates on training in escalation procedures and to review its current Advanced Care Directive form to distinguish resuscitation attempts in natural and unnatural events. Develop national standards describing skills mix and staffing levels required to manage the need of RACF residents to prevent adverse outcomes. Federal and state government health to legislate minimum ratios of nursing staff to residents and that personal care assistance to hold a certificate three in community and aged care, as well as a senior first aid or CPR certificate before they can secure employment in the aged care sector. The coroner directed the finding be provided to the family as well as Federal and State Minister for Health, the Royal Commission in Aged Care Quality and Safety and the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency.
0: Let's now listen to the first commentary titled Advanced Care Planning by Barbara Hayes.
1: Expert commentary, Advanced Care Planning from Associate Professor Barbara Hayes. Clinical Lead, Advanced Care Planning, Palliative Care Consultant, and Honorary Associate Professor, Northern Clinical School, University of Melbourne. Introduction. Many people entering aged care facilities do not have the cognitive capacity to complete an advanced care planning document. Often, these types of documents are completed by family, making interpretation more difficult, particularly in an emergency. Knowing a person's wishes about what treatment they would want if they became ill is important. There are several ways to attain this information and confusion may arise because of the style of documentation, its clinical and legal interpretation. Advanced care planning, a refresher. Advanced care planning is a process that a person with medical decision-making capacity uses to describe their wishes about any future health care for a time when they might lose that capacity. For example, you describe what type and range of care is acceptable to the future you if you have a head injury due to a car crash. In essence, you give instructions today while you are cognitively able to make decisions about what should happen sometime in the future when you are sick and unable to make decisions. Advanced care planning should be considered as related to informed consent. It allows the person to still have a voice in treatment decisions when they lose capacity to make decisions for themselves. Communication about the person's preferences and values may be verbal or written. Advanced care planning terminology and documentation differs throughout Australia. Unfortunately, each Australian state and territory has different legislation and terminology relating to this issue. It is important that advanced care planning forms used in your aged care facilities are consistent with legislation in the state or territory where the resident lives. Written documents or oral communication from a person about their future health care must be taken into consideration at a time of decision-making, applying local legislation. Instructional Directive, Values Directive, Typical RACF Advanced Care Planning Document The language around the documentation can become overwhelming for clinical decisions in care, and it is important to understand the differences. For example, in Victoria, the Medical Treatment Planning and Decisions Act 2016 provides the requirements to create a valid advanced care directive, which incorporates both an instructional directive and values directive. In Victoria, an instructional directive is a type of advanced care planning document which provides blinding consent or refusal instructions that are directed to a health professional. That is, these instructions must be followed to the letter. There are specific legal requirements to be met to make this valid. In Victoria, a values directive is an advanced care planning document that describes a person's preferences and values. These explain your thoughts about treatment in more general terms, such as having a greater liking for one alternative over another. what gives your life meaning this information is used by your substitute medical decision maker to help guide them when making decisions about your treatment at a time of illness any written advanced care planning information that does not meet the legislative requirements of an instructional directive are considered value statements this is how the three forms differ in a practical example of antibiotics instructional directive must be witnessed by a doctor to be valid. An example is the person refuses antibiotics under any circumstances. All health professionals are obliged to follow this regardless of the infection cause and even if the person might deteriorate and die. The medical treatment decision maker cannot override this instruction. Values directive. An example is the person says that they don't want further antibiotics as they don't want their life prolonged. Here, they are leaving the final decision to their medical treatment decision maker who might recognize that despite what is written, the person would still have wanted to have antibiotics to treat symptoms of painful cellulitis or for a distressing urine infection. The medical treatment decision maker can consent to antibiotics if they believe the person would have been willing to have that treatment in the circumstances. If the medical treatment decision maker believes that the person would not want antibiotics under these or any circumstances, they should refuse the antibiotics and request symptom management only. Typical advanced care planning document used in aged care facilities. An example is that the advanced care planning refuses further antibiotics. These documents are sometimes completed by a person for themselves. Often in aged care facilities, they are completed by family. As with the values directive, there must still be a discussion with the medical treatment decision maker using the advanced care planning as the basis for this conversation. The medical treatment decision maker should make the decision they believe that the person would make for themselves regarding antibiotics. Refusal of treatment certificate. Until the 12th of March 2018, a person with pre-existing illness could also complete a refusal of treatment certificate in Victoria. This is no longer possible as the new rules for advanced care planning have come into effect. Note that refusal of treatment certificate documents completed prior to this date are still valid. An example is a valid refusal of treatment certificate completed in January 2018 by a person refusing antibiotics for pneumonia related to their underlying lung cancer. A refusal of treatment certificate is always specific for a pre-existing condition. Hence, if pneumonia developed antibiotics must not be given. If an infection occurred unrelated to pneumonia and the lung cancer, the refusal of treatment certificate does not apply and it may still be appropriate to treat the infection. Discussion with the medical treatment decision maker should occur. Goals of care forms, an alternative to advanced care planning. In Victoria, we have introduced residential aged care goals of care forms These are medical treatment plans that can be completed by a doctor for residents, regardless of the resident's medical decision-making capacity. It does require a shared decision-making discussion between the doctors and resident and or substitute medical decision-maker. The resident's preferences and values are discussed within the limits of what is medically feasible. It translates written and oral advanced care planning into instructions able to be quickly acted upon by staff. In the case of Mr. J, what are his wishes? The advanced care planning document completed by Mr. J is described as a common law advanced care plan rather than an instructional directive. Importantly, the document was completed by Mr. J himself, which is good evidence of his own preferences regarding cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Mr. J also made a supporting oral statement at the time of completing the advanced care planning that indicated he would rather be dead in the event of another stroke or heart attack. Including this type of additional information in the document adds clarity to the written no CPR. In this case, once the incident occurred, there was no time for discussion with the medical treatment decision maker and so the paramedics have acted in good faith on the best evidence available, the written advanced care planning document, stating that Mr J would not wish cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Should the no CPR request apply to Mr. J? This case raises an interesting question about whether the no CPR request should apply in the event of an accident resulting in cardiac arrest. Mr. J has requested no CPR in a written and signed advanced care planning document. He has also conveyed his fear of living with further health problems related to a stroke or heart attack. However, the cause of the cardiac arrest was due to an unanticipated injury and not natural progression of a disease. If the request for no CPR comes from the person, then ethically I believe the situation is no different to cardiac arrest due to ill health alone. In Victoria, the advanced care directive must not be used to promote an action that is illegal but must be otherwise followed. It could be argued that having an advanced care planning document is particularly protective in situations where clinicians might feel compelled to try harder to keep the person alive. For example, if there has been some adverse event such as a deterioration following a fall, such a person should not be obliged to have more treatment than they want to make those who care for them feel better.
0: Let's now listen to the second commentary titled... Improving Outcomes for Aged Care Residents. System Changes Needed. This is by Anita Westerer.
1: Commentary number two Improving Outcomes for Aged Care Residents. Systems Changes Needed. From Anita Westerer, Research Fellow, Australian Health Services Research Institute, University of Wollongong. Introduction. There is no doubt about the value of having skilled nursing staff in residential aged care to ensure older people receive quality and safe care in residential aged care homes. Not only is this consistent in the international evidence, but it was also evident during 2020 where state government-run nursing homes which have mandated staffing ratios were the only ones that didn't experience major outbreaks and deaths from COVID-19. The stories heard by the Aged Care Royal Commission repeatedly highlighted the impact of insufficiently trained staff to meet the needs of residents. New funding model In 2018 and 2019, we developed the new funding model for residential care, the Australian National Aged Care Classifications, or ANACC, to replace the aged care funding instrument. The research involved 5,000 independent assessments of aged care residents which revealed the complexity of care needs experienced by residents, something readers of this article would be all too familiar with. Headline findings found that only 15% of aged care residents could mobilise independently, one-third were completely bedbound. 80% needed assistance with toileting and hygiene, and mental health concerns were rife. Furthermore, we know that many are at the end of their lives, with one-third of residents dying each year. Not unsurprisingly, staff time requirements were predominantly driven by residents' function, cognition, behaviour and technical nursing requirements, consistent with the experience internationally. Staffing compared to international benchmarks. The Royal Commission asked us to examine how well Australia's staffing levels compared with international benchmarks. We found the five-star rating system used in the US by the Centres for Medicare and Medicaid services the most relevant system internationally for judging aged care in Australia. In widespread use for nearly 20 years, it has a strong evidence base. And while the CMS doesn't include allied health staff time, this could be included in an Australian version. Research into the CMS system found that homes are more likely to experience quality concerns when staffing levels fall below the three-star rating time of 30 minutes of registered nurse time and 215 minutes of total time per resident per day. Using the resident assessment data collected in the development of the ANACC, we found that on average, residents in Australia receive 188 minutes of care per day which includes 36 minutes by registered nurses, eight minutes by allied health professionals, mostly physiotherapists, and 144 minutes by personal care assistants. This means that more than half of all Australian aged care residents, 57.6%, are in RACFs that have inadequate one or two stars staffing levels. A little over a quarter, 27%, are in RACFs that have three stars. 14.1% 14.1% of residents are in RACFs with four stars, and 1.3% are in RACFs with five stars, which we consider best practice. Federal Government Response. In their response to the Royal Commission, the Federal Government has indicated that from the first of October 2023, aged care homes must provide at least 200 minutes of total care per day, of which at least 40 minutes is to be provided by an RN. Of course, the ability of care homes to meet these thresholds will be very much influenced by the ability of the sector to improve wages and conditions. Conclusion. A key lesson from these findings is that quality and safety of aged care residents is directly influenced by systemic factors, staffing levels, skill mix and continuity, that are beyond the capacity of individual clinicians to address. What we need is for government to commit to system governance includes using regulatory as well as resource levers at its disposal to ensure our older citizens can receive the care they need.
0: Let's now listen to the special report, which is examining selected recommendations from the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety that are relevant to the case presented in this podcast.
1: selected recommendations from the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety relevant to this case from Joseph Ibrahim. Introduction. The Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety in their final report made 148 recommendations. We have selected a small number to highlight that are pertinent to the case of Mr J. The Federal Government's response to each recommendation is also included. Care Transition. Recommendation 66B, Improving the transition between residential aged care and hospital care, stated that the Australian and state and territory governments should by the 1 December 2021 require staff of aged care services when calling an ambulance for a resident to provide the paramedics on arrival with an up-to-date summary of the resident's health status, including medications and advanced care directives. The Federal Government's response was to accept this recommendation and noted that it was to be progressed in consultation with State and Territory Governments. Worker Qualifications, Recommendation 78, Part 1. Mandatory minimum qualification for personal care workers stated a Certificate 3 should be the mandatory minimum qualification required for personal care workers performing paid work in aged care. The federal government's response was this recommendation is subject to further consideration through the development of the whole of government care workforce strategy. Courses for Aged Care, Recommendation 79, Part 2A. Review of certificate-based courses for aged care. Commissioner Briggs noted that the following additional units of competency should be considered for inclusion as core competencies, personal care modules, including trauma-informed care, cultural safety, mental health, physical health status, wound care, oral health, palliative care, false prevention, first aid and monitoring medication and dysphagia management. The federal government's response was that a review of the certificate should be completed. It did not comment on whether any additional units should be included into the Certificate 3. Minimum staffing, recommendation 86 part 3. Minimum staff time standard for residential care. The minimum staff time standard should require at least one registered nurse on-site per residential aged care facility for the morning and afternoon shifts, 16 hours per day. The Federal Government's response was additional funding will be provided to support services to meet having a registered nurse on-site for 16 hours per day.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. Remember the online print version is available at our website, which also includes a list of the recommended resources and references. I'm Joseph Ibrahim. Thanks for listening.